It's the 23rd of December. About a month ago, in Asda, they had a big sign-up, and it had how many sleeps are left until Christmas. In case you're not sure, is it going to work? That's the answer, Jeff. Yes, it's not. Oh, 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 there we go. There's two more sleeps left, just in case you weren't sort of up with it and thinking about it. Now, I've got a question about you, all right? All of you. Now, it is rhetorical, because you know I like to ask rhetorical questions quite often, so you don't need to answer it out loud. Just think about it in your head. There's lots of fine, marvellous people here this morning. And what I want to know is, in your head, what's the story of your life so far? Now, for some of you, that's a couple of decades or so. Some of you have got a little more sort of uh, thinking because you've got a longer story. I'll tell you about mine, shall I? I'm going to put it in three easy stages. Stage number one. I'd set my scene. So if I was writing my autobiography, I'd sort of say who my parents were, who those, their parents were, who's those parents were. You know, I, I like going back a bit. So I'd go back a few generations. I'd set the scene. Then after I've done that and where I was born and all that sort of stuff, then after that, I might sort of say to myself, well, let's talk about the early life. Now, can you guess which of those three people is me? Not the middle one, you're quite right. <laughs> that would be my sister. So which of the two handsome chaps is me? Remember my character now. The little one. Happy John. Cheery John. That's me. So I've got, if you want to see, all these will be on our website. But even when I was kind of six or seven or something, I was cheerful, always smiling. Life was grand, just like it is most of the time now. So that's my early life. Then also, in adulthood, there's various phases, aren't there? So there's this phase, that phase, another phase. You know, all sorts of things happen when we're adults. Some things we're glad about, and some things we just think, oh, I'd rather forget about that. But the thing with all of us, if pe different people were writing a biography about us, they'd all be a bit different, wouldn't they? So I'd write it in a certain way. Jill might write a biography of me in another way, my mum and dad, Reuben, or if any of you were writing about me, you'd be saying to yourself, all right, this is John, this is what he's done, blah, blah, blah. And maybe there'd be lots of blah, blah, blah about me, but that's okay. Here's the important thing, though. When or where do we start the Jesus story? And of course, you're going to say to me, come on, that's obvious, John. It's just like... Julie Andrews sang in 1965. Let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. So, it's not about do, re, me with Jesus, is it? But what we want to do is think, well, what's the very beginning with Jesus? Did all four gospel writers all start in the same way? You're going to be shaking your head because you know they definitely didn't. And that's the brilliant thing about reading the Bible, reading the four Gospels. We get an idea about Jesus' beginning and Jesus' life, but they're from different angles, aren't they? They're different ways of saying about them. So, we've got Matthew, we've got Mark, we've got Luke, we've got John. And briefly, we're going to look at how each of them started their Gospel. 
and maybe some of the key words that they used to describe about Jesus' early life, how they set the scene, how they heard the early stages, and then Jesus' adult life. So, Matthew. Matthew starts with a genealogy and then has the birth stories. Now, I know some of you are really interested in genealogies, just like me. I could spend a couple of hours easily, without notes, just saying, oh, my granddad did this and his dad, but then his dad so, did so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. You might roll your eyes after a couple of hours, but I'd still be going strong because I'm really interested in my family and what they did and where they came from and what they did. But for Jesus, it wasn't just a jolly hobby, a jolly nice thing to say about him. What Matthew was doing right at the beginning of his gospel was setting the scene saying Jesus was a son of Abraham. Jesus was a direct descendant of King David. He's saying to the Jews who were his primary readers, Jesus is your Messiah. So the reason he had his genealogy there was to say Jesus is really important. You need to take a look at him. Having an idea about their target audience was really important. Now, I know several of us write here, and when we start a book, we always think, well, how am I going to get people interested in what I'm saying, maybe? You want people to stick with your book, so you put something really good at the start, and as you go along as well. I know I do that when I'm writing music and things. It's just, I want people not just to be interested at the very beginning, but to be interested in what's coming up afterwards and just keep on, keep on reading and keep enjoying what's going on. And so we've got Matthew with his genealogy, but there's four women in the genealogy. That's interesting. And his genealogy is a bit different to Luke, and Luke doesn't begin his gospel with a genealogy. His is a couple of chapters later. That's all interesting, isn't it? And also, we've got an idea that Matthew really wants to say, like we're saying, that Jesus fulfills so much of what the Old Testament says. I've got some figures. Matthew gives 53 quotes from the Old Testament and 76 other references are mentioned. And like we say, all of that is about to show that Jesus is the Messiah. His readers wanted to know about that. So right from the start, he's saying, this is what's happening. Of course, Matthew as well doesn't give much of a part to Mary in the first few chapters. It's mostly about Joseph and him having a dream and things like that. Luke, of course, does give a lot of influence and a lot of saying, talking about Mary. Mark. So Mark starts with a prophecy from Malachi and Isaiah. And he talks about Jesus, uh, John the Baptist and Jesus' baptism. So if we were just reading Mark, we'd know nothing, hardly, about Jesus' birth. Because it's all in Matthew and Luke. So I wonder why he started. Like, in the beginning is what he's saying. So arche is the Greek word, beginning, like archaeology. So you sort of think, oh yeah, in the beginning. So he's doing something to get us started with that. And he's not writing to Jewish people. He's writing to Gentile people because he translates a lot of Aramaic words and he helps people understand Jewish customs. So he wasn't writing to the Jews. He was writing to the Gentiles. And even though he's got a short book, it's really fast-paced. And so there's a lot going on really about what Jesus does rather than what Jesus is saying. 
How about Luke? You know Luke is an educated man. He might have been a slave, people sort of suggest, but he was a doctor. It's because lots of doctors were slaves at that time. And he starts with the birth stories. Uh, he talks about John the Baptist and Jesus and their family connection. I wonder about this sometimes. Because at the beginning of Luke, it says that Luke had read lots of the sort of biographies, we could call it, of Jesus. It says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been uh, fulfilled among us. I wonder who wrote those. I wonder what they said. I wonder why they're not in the Bible. Because we know that Mark's gospel was the first to be written. John's was the last. So maybe Matthew had written his as well before Luke. Not sure or wasn't there. Maybe loads of other people. Maybe there was a dozen other people that had written life stories about Jesus. And what they had to say. And what they were about. How did they start Jesus' life story? And what sort of things did they use that none of the four Gospels that we have now used? He would have read all of them, I bet. And he would have spoken to lots of eyewitnesses. So he wasn't just going secondhand about what had happened to Jesus and everything. He would have really sort of gone into detail because he was perhaps the only one of the four Gospel writers that hadn't met Jesus physically. Matthew had, because he was one of the disciples. Mark, or John Mark, probably did, because you know that story in Gethsemane when there was a, a sort of, uh, the people came along and then this young lad run away naked? That's probably Mark. And then John, we know he was the disciple who Jesus loved, so he definitely met Jesus. So Luke, out of all those gospel writers, didn't meet Jesus physically. But he talked to lots of people and he read the stories about Jesus. What about John? John starts before all the others, doesn't he? He starts with, I've called it the prequel of the word, and then he talks about John the Baptist. And it's so interesting, John is, because about 90% of John isn't found in the Synoptic Gospels, in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He uses the word, John does, like Mark, arche, at the beginning. It's the initial starting point of Jesus. That's what he's talking about. And in John, we read this section. We read all of this. So I'm just going to read it out to you now. And you can read it in your head as I read it too. And this is John 1, 1 to 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth.
So, we've got the idea here that Jesus is the light of the world. And that's what I want us to think about today. Jesus being the light of the world. The different Gospels started Jesus' life in different ways, but all of them pointed to Jesus being the light of the world. Now, I've got a non-rhetorical question. In other words, I'd love an answer from you just now. Here's the question, nice and easy. When do you need a light? When it's dark, yeah, of course, when it's dark. So, if I was looking at a lighthouse, and I was a, a young lad, maybe it happened to me, I'd have to ask my dad. If I was young, and I saw a lighthouse, like on my holiday or something like that, and I'd say to my dad, what's that for then? And he'd say, because it's, it's, it shows light. But I'd say, but it's not necessary, look, it's light. Would you sort of run along that train of thought with me if you were kind of seven or eight, maybe? You'd think, there's a lighthouse there, but why is that not necessary? Because, you know, seven or eight-year-olds, it's just the immediacy of now, isn't it? They're not thinking about later. They're just thinking, oh, it's light. So why did they build a lighthouse? What a waste of money. But we all know, can't see it so well now, because it's dark. But the thing is, all this darkness here, we can still see the light shining from the lighthouse. So it's not a waste of money. It's necessary. Of course it's necessary in the light as well, isn't it? Because ships can still see a lighthouse in the light and things, so it's still necessary. But Jesus is the light of the world. Why? Some people would say, people that don't know the Lord, would say, well, the world's pretty all right, isn't it? The world's okay. But Jesus is the light of the world because it's not the perfect world that God originally created. And as we say, lots of people that don't know God personally would have no idea about Jesus needing to be the light of the world. They just think, yeah, the world's a bit bad, but it's not that bad, really. Whereas God has helped us to see that without God coming to earth, the world would be a terrible place. Without Jesus coming to reconcile us to God, it would be dire. Our relationship with God would be non-existent. It would all about, be about sacrifices and sort of, it would be nothing about, Lord, thank you that you're my friend, you're my saviour. So, what are the benefits of Jesus being the light of the world for us? I've got uh, John 8, verse 12 here. I've got it in three different versions that I'll read to you. Later in one of his talks, Jesus said to the people, I am the light of the world, so if you follow me, you won't be stumbling through the darkness, for living light will flood your path. That was a living Bible. Here's the voice. On another occasion, Jesus spoke to the crowds again. Jesus, I am the light that shines through the cosmos. If you walk with me, you will thrive in the nourishing light that gives life and will not know darkness. And then in the message, Jesus once again addressed them. I am the world's light. No one who follows me stumbles around in the darkness. I provide plenty of light to live in. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus said, 
I am the light of the world. And the brilliant thing is, I don't know much about plants, but I know we need light to make them grow. We need nourishing light. I've watched lots of uh, Second, War World, Second World War films and, uh, with my dad and stuff from the 1950s and the 60s. And it's like often the Gestapo sort of with a, a single light going into the person's face. We will make you talk. I'm not going to do a German accent. Uh, you will speak. You will do this. You know what I mean? We, you will sort of say what we've got because this light is shining at you. It's not a living light or a nourishing light. It's a harsh light, a light that doesn't make life conducive. It's not great for you. But Jesus says, I've given you nourishing light, a living light. Is going to help you grow. I haven't just given you a little bit. I've given you plenty. Much more than you need. Because have you found that God is generous to us? He gives us so much more than we need. And yet that light is wonderful. I was going to say brilliant. And it is. God's light is brilliant to us. He's the light of the world helping us to see where to go in our lives. So if that is the question, how does that affect me or us, the next step is a bit harder because so far it's been nice and easy, isn't it? We can say, yes, God says he is the light of the world and he helps us in our life. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. There it is. I'm not making it up. Matthew 5, 14. So the next step after God saying, I am the light of the world, is he says to you, Alex, you are the light of the world. Jeff, you're the light of the world. Hagen, you're the light of the world. Paul, you're the light of the world as well. We're all the light of the world. And you know how God said so many things and did so many things? But then often he'd say, go and do likewise. Do you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? That's where Luke 10 is from. And they talk about showing mercy to people. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Something really tricky, something hard perhaps. But in his power and his love, we can do it. Because Jesus wants us to be a Jesus copier. To copy what he does and act like him. Matthew 5, 14, 16 in the NIV says, You are the light of the world. That's us. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And that's a great few verses to think about. But then, you know, perhaps like you, I'll look at other versions and I'll look at the Greek and I think, oh, what's going on here? What, do, what other ideas do I get from not just reading the NIV, but others? So here's another version, the message. And this really got me going during the week. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colours in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? 
I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. And so that's our calling today, to be the light of the world to the people, to be God's colours to us, to be vibrant people, to open our houses, to open our lives to people so that they too can know God's calling on their lives as well. Jesus, the light of the world. Are you a light to your world? Now, lots of us would have seen pictures like this. It's of the, most of the United Kingdom. But there's all this light pollution, isn't there? They often show that on the weather forecasts sort of uh, nowadays. And here we are, just in case you're all wondering, because it's not so easy to see just here today. So the thing is, we all contribute to that. And we contribute waste as well, in different ways to society, but we'll sort of move on from there. But we all contribute different things, don't we, to Nuneaton. I wonder, what are we contributing in Nuneaton? We're all contributing light and putting things in landfill and all that sort of stuff. But as we go around town and get on with our lives, what are we contributing? How are we being the light of the world to other people? Because what we say, either good or bad, has an effect on people. And I know I, for one, at the end of the day, when I sort of go to bed, and when other people are going to bed, I want them to sort of think, oh yeah, I saw that John today. He was very encouraging. He was very helpful. He made me focus on good things today. I don't want people to think, Phew. I don't want to see him next week for a lesson. That was no good. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I just want, him, want people to think, great, that John was an encourager to me today and to be feeling like I've made a positive difference, a positive contribution in people's lives. Jesus made an absolute and definite change to the world. What changes are we making to people ourselves? Now, yesterday, Jill, Ruben and I, we had a really successful time in Asda. Amongst all the other people with their trolleys and their baskets, we had a successful time. And so, to celebrate, straight afterwards, we went down to Cafe Nero, all right? Because that's the sort of thing to do. Perhaps it's not as good as Costa, but it's, it's, it's all right, isn't it? It's okay, Fiona, is it, to go there? Yeah, okay. So, so we sort of in a queue, lots of people there, and uh, Jill was sorting all the drinks out, and so I went to find somewhere to sit. Because often in these places, it's really hard to find somewhere to sit, isn't it? If there's three of you, like there were, uh, Jill and I and Ruben. And so I found, uh, I saw two people leave, and I thought, oh, brilliant. So I went and sat down. I'll do a mime, if you like. Yep. So I sat down, and then I noticed right next to me was this old chap. He was reading a newspaper. So I clocked him and thought, oh, I wonder if we're going to have a chat with him later. 
you know, because I like talking to people. Do you? Well, perhaps you don't, but I'll just talk to people and it's, it's nice and easy. So, so we, Jill and Ruben came and we had uh, coffee and cake and stuff like that. <laughs> and, uh, and we all sort of had a quiet discussion amongst ourselves. And this chap right next to me, just here, he was reading the newspaper. And I was thinking to myself, hmm, he's still there. And so I, th- I thought to myself, the, quiet, the conversation had died down between the three of us. We've always got stuff to say, but it had quietened down. So I turned to the chap and said, are you looking forward to Christmas? Surprised that someone was talking to him. I'm so glad we talked to him. He was on his own. He'd been married for 57 years. And recently his wife had had Alzheimer's disease. And it's been getting worse. And a couple of weeks ago, she had a fall. And so now she was in hospital about 20 miles away. And so he was on his own. And his wife doesn't know him anymore. And his children kind of live in Edinburgh and somewhere else. I can't remember where. And miles away. So he was telling us, for Christmas Day, he's going to go and see his wife. But she doesn't know him. And then he's just going to spend the rest of the day on his own. I was so glad we talked to him. And then when I offered to pray, he started crying. And he was 80. And I was just thinking to myself, Lord, thank you that you've made me someone who's light to someone else. All he wanted was someone to talk to, but he was just pretending he was all right because he had the newspaper in front of him. Isn't it easy just to talk to someone? You don't know what they're going through. Maybe on a bus or maybe in a cafe Nero or wherever you might be. Isn't it easy just to smile to someone? It might make their day. You probably know that on Wednesday there was someone in an Eton train station and because his life was so terrible, he jumped in front of a train. There must be lots of people And so the Neaton train station was closed for a few hours because obviously he died. But how many people are in the Neaton that are really at the end of their tether? And Jesus says, go and talk to them. Put your arm around them. Be the light of the world to them. Show them my love. Christmas isn't about expanding our waistline or our wardrobe. It is about increasing our wonder in what God continues to do in the world and to decide to selflessly work more for him. So the message of Christmas, we know, isn't about having gifts. But it is about sharing the gift of Jesus that we have in our lives to all the troubled people that we meet. And maybe some people aren't that troubled Maybe lots of people are doing okay. But I bet there's something deep down, something if we were going to talk to them a bit and got their confidence and became friends with them, they'd open up a little bit, just like this older gentleman did with the three of us. He really opened up and just was open and honest with us. Today, I don't want us to go home and thinking oh, that's a hard talk that John gave. That's a bit difficult. That's not the point of what I'm saying today. The point isn't to say to you, do these difficult things. 
The point is, let's know Jesus better. Let's fall in love with God more. Let's have that wonder and excitement about Christmas again. I read this, well, it was in the uh, newsletter a few weeks ago. John Wimber said, it seems the more I think about not sinning, the more I sin. But the more I think about just loving Jesus, the less I seem to sin. Falling in love seems to be the key. When I was young, we used to play dominoes. And on record breakers, we'd watch all the dominoes going down. We did it a few months ago, and Jean did the first one going down. That is just like us. As we receive God's love and send it on to other people, so all these dominoes are going to expand and go places because us just doing a little thing can have a big effect on lots of people. I remember Muhammad Ali saying he was the greatest. I remember uh, John Lennon, he was in some band, I think, saying that, uh, saying that they were greater than Jesus. There's been Charlemagne, Catherine the Great, Herod the Great, Frederick the Great, and dozens of others. Jesus is the greatest. Jesus is second to none. Jesus was the greatest, is the greatest, and will continue to be the greatest. He's in a different field to everybody else. And if you remember from Philippians chapter 2, how we read about Jesus coming down from heaven, and our lives are meant to be a mirror image of his, how he humbled himself and became obedient to the cross. That's what we need to be doing, to humble ourselves and say, Lord, at this busy Christmas time, I know you are the light of the world. Thank you, Lord, that you're making me the light of the world to those around me. Isaiah said, if you are thirsty, come here. Come, there's water for all. Whoever is poor and penniless can still come and buy the food I sell. There's no cost. Here, have some food, hearty and delicious, and beverages, pure and good. This is the light of the world. This is Jesus. And today, he says to us, be the light of the world to others. Encourage and help and love others as I have loved you. Jesus, the light of the world. Let's just pray. Thank you, Lord, that the gospel writers write about your birth and your early life in so many different ways. But, Lord, we know that all of them talk about you changing their lives and thousands of other people's lives when you were alive physically. Lord, today we offer our lives to you again and say, in our lives, Lord, be the light of the world. Be our light so that we can shine for other people to know your light too. In small ways and big ways, Lord, help us to hear from you and be obedient when you ask us to do things. Thank you, Lord, for today. Thank you that there is only two more sleeps till Christmas. But, Lord, thank you for coming. Thank you for being our light today. Amen.